Good morning again, Calvary. And just another reminder, if you do have kids, there is Kids Club going on and the nursery, so make use of that if you would like to. So we are in a series going through Haggai, a prophet in the Old Testament, as a way to prepare our hearts for Christmas and remembering the incarnation of Christ. Often in in sports, what separates a good team from a bad team or a good player from a bad player is what I might call grit. I think I see this especially in golf, where if somebody has like a really bad hole, sometimes you can see it where they just psychologically take a nosedive and they never recover. That they do one bad hole and then they just, the rest of the game, the shot. But the good players will face those challenges, will face the discouragement, and they're able to persevere through it. They don't go into the psychological nosedive. And so in life, we will often face challenges and struggles and discouragement. And that's especially true for us as Christians, that we will face challenges and struggles, that we will face discouragement. And so today we'll be answering the question, how do we face discouragement? How do we face discouragement? And as we look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, I want you to see first, where does discouragement come from? And then second, what are two ways to face discouragement that we see in the passage? So first, where does discouragement come from? And then we'll see two ways to face discouragement. So to start, I'll pray, and then we'll read Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. God, we ask that you would remind us that you are for us in Christ and that because of Christ, you are with us. Remind us of your presence with us so we could face discouragement as we faithfully follow our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So before we look at that first question of where does discouragement come from, I want to remind you of the context again. So if you missed last week or the week before, Ben set us up well to show us where we are at in Haggai. So Haggai is taking place after the exile. So just a really brief recap. The nation of Israel went from bad to worse, and they succumbed to idolatry, and God punished them for that and sent them into exile. But now at this point in redemptive history, God is sort of recreating or reconstituting his people and bringing them back from exile back to the promised land. So God's people are starting to return to the promised land. And as they're returning, they're starting to settle in. They're starting to rebuild their houses and get back to normal life. But as they're making their houses, they have forgotten about God's house. They've forgotten about the temple. And so instead of rebuilding the temple for God, they hired Chip and Joanna Gaines to rebuild their own house, and they forgot about God's house. And so in Haggai chapter 1, God rebukes his people for not rebuilding his house, and then they respond to that rebuke, and almost surprisingly, they respond well. They start to rebuild the temple. And so that's where we are at now then in Haggai chapter 2. God's people have started to rebuild the temple, And here's what we see going on. So first, 
Where does discouragement come from? Discouragement comes from when our expectations don't align with our experience. We expect one thing will happen, and then we experience something totally different. And then discouragement creeps into our hearts. I think about it in my own life. <clears throat> After I graduated from seminary, and then I took my first ministry job in a local church, I was so excited. I just spent four years learning and training and preparing to do that, to find a church where I could minister in and be involved. And so I had so many hopes and dreams and just excitement to get to finally do this. I had been spending the better part of almost a decade preparing for ministry and doing different ministry. And so I had expected that this position would look a certain way for a variety of reasons. And once I started the role, it was so different than I had expected. My actual experience in the job was so different. And it was probably one of the most discouraging times in my life. Because I was here and I was expecting I'd be doing this, and I ended up doing that instead. And it really made me question. I questioned a lot if I should even be in ministry. I questioned what I'd been doing for the last six or eight years of my life. I'd spent so much time and money training and trying to learn and do ministry, and now here I am, and I I don't know what to do. I felt disillusioned and discouraged and probably some other word that starts with dis. It, it was hard. It was a really hard time because what I had expected was so different than what I had experienced. And what's going on in Haggai chapter 2 is something like that. God's people, as they are laying the bricks for this temple, some of the Israelites remember the old temple during Solomon's day. And they remembered the glory and the grandeur and how great that temple was. And as they make this temple, they're starting to realize it's not as great as that other one. It's not as great as Solomon's temple. And that discourages them. And so that's why we read in verse 3, we can look there now, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So what God is telling the people is he knows that there are some Israelites there who know that the temple doesn't quite match up to Solomon's temple. And what this means for Israel and what this means for us, Calvary, is that we should not pridefully compare our situation to somebody else's, but instead God is calling us to faithfully follow him. We should not pridefully compare, but instead faithfully follow God, and then trust Him with what those results will be. And we see this throughout Scripture. Jesus Himself even drives this point home with His disciples. At the end of the Gospel according to John, in John chapter 21, Jesus is reinstating Peter as an apostle. And so Jesus has been raised back to life from the dead, and He's reinstating Peter, and He's telling Peter, everything that Peter will have to do and suffer for Jesus' sake. And as Jesus explains this to Peter, Peter looks at the Apostle John and he says, well, what about this guy? And so let's hear what Jesus says in response to Peter in John chapter 21, verse 21 through 22. When Peter saw him, that is John, 
he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And in a similar way, that's what God was calling Israel to do. He was calling them to be faithful and to follow him. And to not compare their situation to somebody else's. And the same is true for us. That we would faithfully follow God and trust him with the results and the consequences. So now that we see where discouragement comes from, let's look at the first way we face it. And the first way is by remembering God's presence. By remembering God's presence. I'm reminded of how so often who is with you can change the situation. It can give you the courage you need or the strength you need to do whatever it is you wanted to do. I remember the other day, the kids and I, we were at this Christmas village and there were some horses there and they wanted to see the horses and maybe pet the horses, but they were scared to do it by themselves. And so my son asked me if I would hold him. And so I held him and he touched the horse and had a great time. But for him, my presence made all the difference. He knew that dad was with him, that dad will protect him, that I love him, that I care for him. And that's all I needed. He needed my presence with him to do what he wanted to do. In this case, he wanted to touch a horse. Well, a similar thing is going on here with the nation of Israel as God speaks to them. He is reminding them that he is with them. And so that's why we read in verses 4 and 5 that God would encourage them with his presence. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 now in Haggai chapter 2. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. In other words, Keep rebuilding the temple. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God is calling Israel to persevere in what he has called them to do, and he's reminding them, you can do this. Because I am with you. And the whole point is that Israel is not great. But God is great. And he is with them. And that gets to the heart of the gospel. The gospel says that we aren't great. But the good news is that Jesus is great. And he is a great savior. And he saves sinners. And so God calls Israel, he calls us to obedience. But he doesn't call us to omniscience. He calls us to obedience, but not to omniscience. We won't know everything that he's doing. We won't know all his plans and purposes or how he will use our obedience. That's not for us to know. That's for him to know. We are to faithfully follow him. One commentator on this passage in Isaiah put it really well. Michael Barrett says that the main point of the second sermon of Haggai is that God has a purpose for his people greater than their perceptions and expectations. God has a purpose for his people 
greater than their perceptions and expectations. From Israel's perspective, things didn't look that great. The temple wasn't like Solomon's, but God had a purpose beyond what they could see, a greater purpose that he was going to work. And when we're in the middle of discouragement, it can be so hard to realize that and to see that. That's why we need to remember God's presence with us. We see this elsewhere in Scripture again. We see this especially with Joseph in the Old Testament. You might remember the story, but Joseph has a bunch of older brothers who don't like him, and they pick on him, and they sell him into slavery. Thanks, brothers. And so he's in slavery, and life isn't going very well. But then things start to pick up finally for Joseph. He starts to improve his life. And then eventually, things don't go well again. So he's basically working for a political leader, and that leader's wife tries to seduce him. And he doesn't give in. He resists. And so she just decides to frame him instead. And so let's read about that really briefly. And I want you to pay attention and think about this as I read this. Just ask yourself, where is God in the middle of this? As we hear about this happening to Joseph. Where is God? Look at, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 39, verse 19 through 21. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Do you think Joseph was discouraged? I would be. He did everything right. If he could go back and do it over, he should do what he did. He did the right thing. And so often in life, that's what happens. We do the right thing and it may not lead to a great, comfortable life. And we might think in those struggles and in those moments that God has abandoned me that he's left me, that he's not with me. But what we see in this passage is that God was with Joseph. Even in prison, in his struggles and in his discouragements, God was with him. And so we need to remember, church, that if you have trusted in Christ, God is with you. And he is with you because he is for you in Christ. And this is very important. So we need to think for a moment, why would God be with us at all? If God is a holy God and we are sinful people, there is no reason that he should be with us. Or if he is with us, why that should be a good thing. Holiness and sin don't mix. The only reason it's good news that God is with us is because he has first redeemed us. And even in Israel, in this passage in Haggai, he reminds Israel of their redemption story, of the salvation that he worked in their, in their life. That's why in verse 5, he reminds them of redemption. He reminds them of the exodus. Let's look at verse 5 in Haggai chapter 2. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Israel 
could be afraid that God has abandoned them because of the exile. But he's reminding them, I made a covenant with you. You may have broken that covenant, but I didn't. God always keeps his word. He makes a promise and he keeps it. So he tells Israel, you may have abandoned me, but I haven't abandoned you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You've forgotten how I redeemed you. If you would remember that, you would know that I am with you. I am for you, even when it is so hard to see it or to understand it. Now that takes us to the second way we face discouragement. We face discouragement by looking forward to future glory. Looking forward to future glory. We need a future orientation or an eternal perspective. That eternal perspective will sustain us in the face of trials and discouragement and struggles. If there is no heaven to be gained or a hell to be feared, what's the point? Why are we doing any of this? But if there is a heaven and a hell, that changes everything. There is a future awaiting us. And this future perspective would often and does often propel missionaries out into the mission field. It propels them out to share Christ, even when it may cost them. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Jim Elliott. He had an eternal perspective that propelled him out to try sharing the gospel with a people group, a people group who ultimately killed him. And yet Jim says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If that isn't true, we would look at Jim's life and say, this was a total waste. Why would you ever do that? But if there is a heaven to be gained and a future glory coming, it makes all the difference in the world. Jim's sacrifice was not a waste. Now, in our passage in Haggai, God is reminding his people Israel that there is a future glory coming. That you might not be able to see it right now. It might be hard to see, but it's coming. And so he reminds them of this future glory in verses 6 through 9. Pay special attention to verse 9. Let's read those verses now. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So let's look at verse 9 a little bit more in depth. I want to ask a question, and let's try to answer this question. How exactly will this house be greater than the previous one? How will it have a greater glory than the previous one? And we're going to ask that because we just saw earlier that this temple, from all perceptions, was not greater. That compared to Solomon's, it was not as glorious as Solomon's temple. 
So what exactly is God getting at in verse 9? For us to answer that question, we need to see how this passage is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. How it finds its fulfillment in Christ. And what we see is when we look to the New Testament, Jesus is the true and better temple. Jesus is God himself. And when he comes in the incarnation, Christmas, when Jesus comes, it's God himself dwelling with us. In John chapter 1, it even uses the language of Jesus coming and tabernacling or templing with us. So, for instance, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled or templed among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So why will this future temple be greater than the previous one? Because Jesus is greater. Jesus is far greater. And that's why this temple will be greater. And it will also be greater because for every believer in Christ, they are also now God's temple, individually and corporately as the church. And so In Solomon's day, the temple was located in one spot. But now in the New Covenant, God's temple is going global. Wherever there are Christians, wherever there are churches, God's presence dwells with them. We read about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want that to sink in with you, Calvary. That means that right now, God is with us. He's dwelling among us. We are his temple. He is with us. This temple will also be greater because one day, God will bring this perfectly to completion. One day, the entire world will be God's temple. God's presence will radiate throughout the entire world that he has made. We read about this in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. So we can face discouragement because we know in the future there will be a future glory where all of the discouragement, all the pain, all of those former things will pass away. So let's bring this together, Calvary. We see where discouragement comes from. And we've seen that, one, by remembering God's presence with us. And two, by looking forward to the future glory, we can face that discouragement. And so I want to close by reminding you of another verse in Romans chapter 8. And in this passage, Paul is reminding the Christians in Rome of this idea that there will be a future glory. And that because of that, that gives them the resources now 
to face the discouragements, the challenges, and the struggles that they have to deal with. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, we read, For I consider that the sufferings, or the discouragements, the trials, the struggles, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To us, there is a glory coming. One day, God will restore you and me. He will restore this creation in glory. And that is where we're heading. And so, Calvary, we can face discouragement because God is with us, because of the redemption He has wrought in Christ, and because we are looking forward to a city that cannot be shaken. And because of that, we can face discouragement, Calvary. Let's pray. Blessed Redeemer, we look forward to that nobler and more glorious hope. And when we are there, we will look forward even more to the day of your final appearance. There we'll long even more to see you vindicated, your triumph displayed, and the dust of your servants brought back to life. There we will see the final enemy, death itself, swallowed up in victory. Keep our eyes tuned to the wonderful signal of your arrival so our glowing souls spring to meet you with joy. Strengthen and prepare us in death for those visions of glory which our feeble bodies could never endure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.